You're listening to Elevate the Hunt, the podcast that takes you deeper into the issues surrounding our lifestyle and passion for hunting. I'm Everett Headley, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, everybody, to Elevate the Hunt. I knew when I started this podcast that Mark Damian Duda was somebody that I wanted to host here. He has some incredible work at his company called Responsive Management, and it is a trove of natural resource and outdoor recreation research, including hunting. If you've ever heard a quote about national hunting trends or social attitudes towards hunting, there's a really good chance that it came from him. Hunting has widespread support across many social dynamics, and Mark has the data to back that up. His book, How to Talk About Hunting, is one every hunter should pick up a copy. We know that the sharpest knives cut the easiest and the quickest, and Mark's book will definitely help you hone your edge. Enjoy the show, and when you're done, please be sure to like, share, or leave us a review. Here we go. I'm sitting down today with Mark Damian Duda, and Mark, thanks for being here. It's kind of been a little bit struggle for both of us to get our schedules aligned and, and finally get this one done. It has, and I appreciate you sticking with me. When I started looking at emails, we started this in January. It's definitely good because I've followed your work for a long, long time now, and so I'm excited to have you on. Also, since we scheduled that first time until now, there's been some really interesting developments in your research and some trends that are kind of alarming. So it's it's really fortuitous that we are, we're able to kind of touch on that. But we're also going to be diving really deeply into the book that you wrote, How to Talk About Hunting. I'm, I'm excited about that. Jam-packed with all sorts of goodness. If you would, can you give us kind of the 30-second background on, on who Mark Damian Duda is? Sure. Well, first, again, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm the executive director of Responsive Management. It's a company I founded 33 years ago. And we do social science and what we call human dimensions aspects of conservation. So wherever people and natural resources interface, we get involved. So, of course, we do a lot of work with hunting, with fishing, with camping and wildlife viewing, sports shooting. Wherever people and natural resources meet, which is in most places, we get involved. In social science, can you tell us a little bit more what that really is? I guess it would bring up a quote that I often use, Aldo Leopold. He said that the problem of wildlife management is not how we should handle the deer. The real issue is human management. Wildlife management is comparatively easy. Human management is difficult. And, you know, you think about all the things involved with conservation of wildlife and you know, before 1600s, wildlife was, was doing pretty good until humans arrived and market hunting and, and all of the other habitat losses and stuff like that. So now there's so much interaction with people and natural resources. Studying people in relation to conservation is certainly just as legitimate as studying wildlife. We manage deer pretty good. Um, it's people that throw the monkey wrench into it. Man, isn't that the truth? I was driving through Wyoming this past spring and going through the path of the pronghorn where those migrations happen. And they're talking about all the different troubles that the pronghorn are having making that migration now with fencing and the interstate and houses being built up and these these bottlenecks. And it's all about the human aspect of it where the antelope were fine. And then all of a sudden we decided we wanted to live there too. And now we have this competition. Yep. 
I had a wildlife biologist friend. He would describe a little bit about what you're doing as negotiating a place for wildlife on the landscape, which kind of seems a little bit counterintuitive because they were here first, likely. And maybe I don't want to say they deserve it more, but there's certainly an aspect where their their place is legitimate. And then we kind of come in and say, yeah, I want my I want my dream home on top of the hill so I can see the deer and the elk. And then everybody else does that. And all of a sudden the deer and the elk, they're gone, right? Yep, exactly. Well said. Your background is really interesting. You you went to Yale and you're a certified wildlife biologist. So you've been, you've really been doing this for a long time, but then you're also a proud hunter too, right? You were telling me during the pre-interview, you just completed your Turkey Grand Slam. I did. I did. It, it was, it was very personal. I only started hunting turkey relatively recently. Um, I was introduced by Rob Keck of who, you know, helped found the National Wild Turkey Federation and I'd actually just come back from an African buffalo hunt. And he's like, no, I'm going to take you turkey hunting. You're going to, you're going to love it. And if you know, Rob, Rob, I, I like to joke that Rob can call a turkey into your living room. I mean, he's amazing and brought a turkey in. I shot it and it was, it was one of the best things I'd ever done. It was just really fun. And he sort of turned, and he said, well, how does that compare to buffalo hunting? And I was like, that's pretty much better. And so then about a year ago, I decided that I would try to do the, the Grand Slam and got some, some really good trips up because of so many good people out there and got a Rio Grande in uh, Kansas and then a Miriams in New Mexico and then a really, really nice Osceola in Florida. It was actually the third highest scoring Osceola ever to come out of Florida, which was sheer luck. It was it was not, you know, it's it's luck. It, there's there's a lot going on there, but I had another guy I was with and he said, you know, you take the first bird and it's like, you sure? And he's like, yeah. And it was just being in the right place at the right time. So it was pretty cool, but I'm going to have all, all four of them stuffed and full, full mount um, strutting and going to put them in my house. So it'll be pretty cool. Are they going to be individual or are they going to be on the same tree? Maybe all individual. Yep. I've got two on each side is going to be a Jack Daniels barrel, like you've seen. And then two yeah. in the middle are going to be on habitat. The Osceola and the Rio are going to be on on habitat where I got them. Nice. Now, any dreams of doing the World Slam? Possibly. Um, I haven't thought about it yet because it, I literally just finished up the Grand Slam with the, the Merriams in New Mexico, which actually turned out to be one of the harder ones in terms of just calling something in. So, so everything is sort of new right now um, in terms of just realizing that I actually did it. And I know a lot of people do it. And it was really, really fun. And as a biologist, really interesting to learn all the different species and then even learn about different habitats and, and different folks out there. You know, I was at the, a place called the Whittington Center out in New Mexico. That was amazing. It's run by the NRA and just absolutely beautiful property. So it was fun to meet all the different people as well. So, and then in Florida, of course, the, you know, in South Florida was just amazing. So, and I actually started my career as a wildlife biologist with, at the time, the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission, now the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. What I say, the Florida, that was at the time it was the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. Now it's the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And again, during the pre-interview, you described yourself uh, on a scale of one to 10, loving hunting as a 10, right? Oh yeah. But maybe, maybe in terms of, of how good I am, probably pretty middle of the road. <laughs> I, I rely on a lot of, of people who are really good. So I'm, I'm a, I'm more of a apprentice follower than a, than a, at the top there. So, but I love it. I love, I love being outside. Yeah. But you've been to Africa too and hunted over there. 
I have. I've, I've been to Africa a lot. Um, I've been to Africa probably 15 times. I've only hunted a few of those. I've, I've been over for work that we've actually done with gorillas, the mountain gorilla and early days in the Serengeti and stuff. But, but I have, I've, I've hunted several kudu, you know, a lot of the plains game, buffalo. So I, I love Africa. Yeah. Any suggestions for somebody that's not been to Africa yet, but it's going soon? It depends what they want, but I would I would probably say that Namibia is the easiest and maybe the safest, the most friendly. Although, I mean, Tanzania is great. I love Tanzania, but it, it can be expensive for the average person. Um, Botswana, of course, is phenomenal. South Africa is phenomenal. I actually have a, a um, bid on a Niala and sable hunt that I'm going to go to next May that I'm really looking forward to in South Africa. But I've probably hunted more in Namibia and know more people there. So it's just a little bit easier for me. So you can't live a life without having gone to Africa. Yeah. I, I mean, geez, it's uh, it's on my list and I had plans to go. COVID messed those up. And so we're, we're trying to get back on track with that. But I, I mean, how do you not watch movies, right? Based in Africa and you read stories of um, the old school guys who who did it before. I was reading this book. I forget what it's called now, but it was an elephant hunter in the early, sometime around like maybe 1880s. And he was doing it with a muzzle loader. So it was always a single shot. There were a couple times that, that when he pulled the trigger, the, the recoil actually knocked him off of his horse. But he would go out for months at a time collecting ivory and bring it back and then go back out again. And it just, there's, there is something there that is really enchanting, right? And, and it's so... So big and so different than what we have here in North America. Um, I don't. I don't know how you could look at Africa and just say, "Yeah, it's just not on my radar. It's not on my list." It, no matter what, even if you don't hunt or whatever, every everybody needs to go to Africa. Well, it's uh, it's it's on my list for sure. It didn't take much to convince my wife to go. <laughs> the I think it's twenty four hours of flight time for us here in Western Montana to get over to the south part of Africa. And that does not excite me too much, but I mean, I'm told it's worth it. So we're going to do it. Yeah. It's worth every dollar and every minute of time. Take me back 30 years ago, responsive management. When you looked at the landscape and you said, we're missing something that we need in the, the the hunting community and I'm going to fill it. What made you think that? Well, I was a wildlife biologist. I uh, worked for Florida and went back to graduate school for social science, policy, and law. I worked with a guy named Steve Kellert, who was sort of an original human dimensions person um, at Yale. He's since passed away, but he was really, you know, him, a guy named Dan Decker up at Cornell. um, Some other folks were really the, the leaders in this whole idea of applying people and the people side to conservation. So I got to work with, with Steve when I was working at Florida, um, it was actually the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies that started responsive management. And they knew, you know, they, they recognized the dearth in social science. And so I was a board member and ultimately um, was asked to be the director of sort of this fledgling organization. That was in the 1980s. And then around 1990, we started getting so busy that we said, well, you know, maybe we should go private. And they were saying, you know, you know, why don't you try this? And so that was in 1990. They sort of said, well, let's go private. And we did. And that was since 1990. And that was one person, you know, sort of in a, a room with no windows and then just went from there. And now we've got about 
hire about 85 people and we do conservation work around the world. Looking at that research over three decades, are, are you finding the trends that you really want to or, or are there still things that are still a little bit mysterious to you? I don't think there's a whole lot that's mysterious, to be honest with you. I think there's things that we do that are new that we look into. We just finished a big study on um, CWD in Pennsylvania for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And, you know, you don't know what you're going to find in not isolated cases, but in new things like that. You know, what what are public attitudes, opinions on CWD in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, where we've done work? What are attitudes on bears in Florida, Louisiana? So there's there's things like that that you approach and you still don't know a lot about. And we monitor a lot of things like attitudes toward hunting over the years that sometimes things change, like I'm sure we'll get into. In terms of the larger picture, we, we sort of we sort of know what's going on. It's just the, the application in specific cases and specific times and that. I think we have a pretty good handle on, on hunting, for sure, hunting, sport shooting, fishing, and those types of things. I know as a researcher, you, you kind of just figure out what the data is, and then you give it to somebody to interpret, so you're not looking for the why. But are there whys that you have found that might have been surprising for you? We definitely try to get into into some of the whys because, you know, you don't want to just put research out and, and just say, well, it is what it is. I, you come at it from sort of three different angles. One is you do the research and you do the research in a very neutral way as possible. You know, we never I've never in 33 years and you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars worth of research. I've never taken a job where somebody said you need to find this out because if somebody says that. I'm not going to take the work. I mean, you know, there's there there it is what it is. If X percent of people support hunting or whatever, um, it is what it is. And then after that, you start trying to figure out why. And then from the profession that we're in, you figure out what to do about it. So it's a it's a it's a sort of a three step process. If you if I really think about it, which I you know have over the years, but you know you find out why in a what's happening, then you start applying it to, I mean, you know, with hunting, which is what we're going to talk about, you know, every single state fish and wildlife agency by law has to provide hunting opportunities. So it's completely legitimate to write a book called how to talk about hunting um, in that manner. You know, people like, Oh, you're a hunting advocate. So you're going to find out what, you know, how to do it. Well, no, you do the research first. And then according to your clients, you do something about it. We're looking with a number of organizations, state fish and wildlife agencies, how to increase funding on non-game wildlife, wildlife viewing. We do the full range of, of outdoor activities. You gave a presentation when the book How to Talk About Hunting first came out a couple of years ago. And I was just I was just taking screenshots the whole time because, I mean, there's so much that is packed in there, right? And forgive me if I did that. I've not shared it with anybody, but... I, I, for my own benefit, right, to be able to go back and look and see. And it was over the course of a couple of days that you you presented your findings and then you really started to parse out and, and find some of these details that would really help us to be more effective as communicators about hunting. Did you write this book with the wildlife biologist kind of in mind or the outdoor professional or was it more for everyday Joe who's out there just trying to, to find some birds in the fall? Good question. Well, it's really important for me to say that the National Rifle Association's Hunters Leadership Forum sponsored this book and, you know, paid us to take the time, which was, you know, close to a year for me and my staff to really assemble all the stuff that we've done. They helped sponsor some work on animal rights and animal welfare, really some of the first national studies on animal rights and animal welfare. 
They help pay for an update on the national trends that we've been doing since 1995. So I really want to give credit to a guy named Peter Churchborn, who really helped spearhead this and said, you know, Mark, you need to write this book and we need to, to help you get there. So I put it together based on, you know, work that we've been doing since about 1995 and with them. The Hunters Leadership Forum's help, and then others as well. The Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation sponsored some of the original work that we did with debate strategies. But we put it together, you know, honestly for the for everyday hunter in term because there's some things in there that people have to do. If you care about hunting, you need to communicate effectively about hunting. Absolutely, yeah. Where where do we begin then with this big question of how to talk about hunting? Well, I think. Start by saying that it matters. Everybody loves to use that word anymore, that it matters. But if you think about the history of hunting in America, I mean, we've played such a pivotal role in wildlife conservation that I think that we first have to accept that it's it's really important to do. I think it's just as important to do as habitat management or wildlife population control or studying chronic wasting disease. I mean, it needs to be a part of, of what we do every single day as first and foremost, wildlife conservationists, and second, as hunters. And everybody who has ever been a great hunter has been a wildlife conservation first. I mean, from Theodore Roosevelt to Aldo Leopold to to all of those people who have cared and have contributed to conservation. So first off, it matters in terms of what, what you say. Second, it matters in terms of how you say it. Think about some of the just really interesting things that you hear every day that you might not think, oh, well, words matter. Think about about how different groups talk about the same thing. An illegal alien versus an undocumented worker. The death tax versus the estate tax. It's the same thing, but you're referring to a different and you're setting up an image in somebody's mind that can profoundly affect how they talk about it and whether they accept it as positive or negative. Here's the big one. Weapons of war, assault rifles. Well, they're modern sporting rifles. And so you can see sometimes each side sort of takes the stance that, you know, we call it a more modern sporting rifle, but people who may be against guns will call them a weapon of war. So, you know, what you say and how you say it matters. What you post on the internet matters. If you show, you know, bloody, gross pictures of, of your kill, you're not doing anybody a, a service. Well, you're you're becoming an anti-hunter at that point because you're turning people off. If you talk about hunting the son of a bees, I know we're a, a G-rated podcast, but <laughs> if you talk about you know you know kill that son of a bee or kill it and grill it, I mean, again, you're not doing anybody any kind of service. If you don't know the difference between animal rights and animal welfare, you're not going to become a good communicator. If you don't at least have some remote aspect of understanding ethos or pathos or logos that we can get into, you're not going to talk effectively about hunting. I actually started the book with a quote that says something to the effect of, you know, don't become louder. Don't increase the volume of your argument. Become a better communicator. And so don't raise your voice. Make your argument better. And so we, again, as hunters and as conservationists, I think need to learn the importance of language and the importance of words and the importance of communications, and in some cases, the importance of debate strategies. 
because we're, we're often asked sometimes, you know, well, why do you hunt? Why do you do that? Why, what are you doing? You're, you're killing animals. You must be destroying the populations. Well, no, actually, it's hunters that this year alone donated $1.5 billion to state fish and wildlife agencies to do the incredible work that they do. We need to become better communicators for lots of reasons. Well, we're definitely going to dive into the communication strategies. I want to go back and, and ask a little bit about wildlife commissions. And so, you know, referencing the history that we've had as conservationists for, I don't know, what, 130 years now, and how we as the hunters and sportsmen have funded that. And that's, you know, oversimplifying it to be sure. But we're starting to see these shifts in wildlife commissions, Washington and Colorado for sure come to mind, where you have commissioners who are now no longer just non-committal about their stance on hunting, but they're actively anti-hunting. And so they're starting to put forth ideas like compassionate models of wildlife instead of the North American model for wildlife conservation. And and they're they're making policy and putting out regulations based on those those viewpoints, right? And so we see in Washington no more spring bear season and, and this is starting to filter out into other places. And so you have the history of conservation, but now you have people actually making the rules who don't share that history or don't share those viewpoints and we're starting to see changes in that. Does that concern you as a trend? Yeah. Well, there's some interesting things going on just from a societal standpoint. You know, we as a a nation becoming more what we would call mutualistic as opposed to utilitarian. And so you are seeing the rise of people who don't understand hunting and don't understand the history and the role that it's played. Um, And again, I think that comes back to us that we haven't been as good communicators as we could be. I mean, we're incredible conservationists. I mean, as a friend of mine, he might have had on, Shane Mahoney often says, wildlife is not here by accident. I mean, wildlife is in this nation now because of rules and regulations and agency policies and habitat purchases and protection. And the wildlife that we see out there from deer to turkey to quail to elk, I mean, all of those have have come back due to the North American model of wildlife conservation. So I think it's up to us to increase our effectiveness on communications. I mean, most people just don't know about it. Um, Last week, I got invited with Peter Churchborn of the Hunters Leadership Forum to talk to a bunch of Boy Scouts. And there was actually women in there. There There's females in there as well about the history of wildlife conservation in the U.S. And people just don't understand the connection between hunting and conservation. So the thing is, is that the more they do and the more they understand it, I think it's just more of a success all the way around. But I do, I share your concern that in some states, there are some outright anti-hunters in there because very small percentage of Americans are anti-hunting. There's people who are anti, who are animal rights, but the majority of people are more animal welfare. And we can talk about that as well. But that's it's a very they represent a very small number of people when it comes to you know hardcore anti hunting. Do you feel like there is there's value in still trying to communicate to these people who are clearly anti hunting and have an agenda? These commissioners specifically, do you feel like there's still value in trying to educate them, or is that just pearls before swine type of speak? 
I am definitely a partner type of person. I think I think it's important for wildlife in general because the only the only real loser becomes wildlife when people are arguing so much that they forget about conservation. And even in the book, we talk about that whole idea of focusing focusing in on shared values as a way to communicate. Everybody is whether you're an anti-hunter or hunter, everybody can agree that habitat protection is important, that purchasing habitat is important, that managing wildlife is important from, you know, whatever it may be, prescribed burning or whatever. You know, most people agree with that. And so I really like to focus in on the commonalities as well. And then the other part of that is that that while hunting is a very legitimate part of state fish and wildlife agencies. A lot of these agencies now are starting non-game programs. I've worked in a non-game program for a number of years, and there's there's all sorts of issues there that I feel like can be focused on. I mean, hunters and conservationists have done a great job on the hunted species, and there's reasons for that. So I like to turn a lot of their attention not on game or worrying about hunting per se, but if they really want to put the effort out, let's focus on some of these non-game species as well, from peregrine falcons to warblers and and all of the other species that aren't hunted, that are in peril, that could certainly use their help on. Well, you know, you bring that up about non-game species, and I know Shane has talked about that before, too. And then you mentioned peregrines, and that's really near and dear to my heart. Uh, as a falconer, I have a peregrine out the back door here, too. So, yeah, I, I, there is something where they they get, they tend to be overlooked, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of collateral... Uh, credit, I think, that can happen where the Turkey Federation says this a lot, right? Save the habitat, save the hunt. And so when you do that, you're not just saving turkeys, but there's all sorts of other species from the top down that that utilize and benefit from that increased, you know, vitality in the, in the habitat. But as hunters, you know, when September 1 rolls around, I'm not thinking about, you know, the Clark's nutcracker in the tree. I'm thinking about, you know, the Rocky Mountain elk that's bugling and I need to go find but there is something there. I think a conservation ethic that we talk about on this platform a lot where there, there needs to be, I think, some more concern, effort, energy directed towards these species that, that we're never going to pursue um, beyond, you know, just with binos or, or, you know, as a, I don't know, some type of wildlife scavenger hunt trying to find a species you've never seen before, right? But why is it you think that, that hunters get so focused on just that and they, they don't broaden their perspective a little bit more focused on on not focused on non-game right where where it's the non-game species they're not even an afterthought most times well i would argue otherwise i mean think about okay so we have the restoring america's wildlife act the agencies are trying to increase funding for non-game wildlife species that aren't hunted who are the leaders in that movement it's the state fish and wildlife agencies it's the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. It's the Wildlife Management Institute. It's Boone and Crockett. It's Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. It's the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. The leaders in trying to truly get something done for non-game wildlife and declining species like warblers are state fish and wildlife agencies that still are quite hunting oriented. So for me, I, I tip my hat to the agencies and what they're doing because they are working toward enlarging the focus on conservation, which, which we should. I mean, all species are important. So I'm pretty proud of what hunters do, even in the surveys that we've done on support for the Restoring America's Wildlife Act. Hunters are right up there. 
So I do think that, um, well, I, I don't think it, I know it from survey research, that hunters are concerned about non-game and comprehensive wildlife conservation. Now, you're right, though, when you're sitting in a blind, you want those ducks to come in. You want those geese to come in. You want that swan to come in. So, you know, we can have that myopic focus when we're out in the field or hunting season is starting and we're all thinking about some things. But I also think on a broader scale, the majority of hunters who at least think about these things are very holistically conservation oriented. I don't see PETA running out there for Restoring America's Wildlife Act. I don't see a lot of anti-hunters trying to fund these agencies in in non-game. When I was a part of the non-game program in Florida and helped start that program, that was initiated by the hunters in that agency. And a really good friend of mine, his name is Vic Heller, he's since passed away, um, just an incredible person, was the division chief of that program. So a lot of this, in fact, almost all of it is emanating out of the hunting community. Do you feel like sportsmen have done enough for non-game species? Is there more that we could be doing or are we we kind of on par with where we should be on that perspective? I think we're on par for everything that we can do. The problem is, is Restoring America's Wildlife Act has not passed yet. The one that we were trying to get through at the turn of the century, the Conservation and Reinvestment Act, did not go through. So it's, God, we get so close, we get so close, and then something happens from a political perspective. We're not political, but I, I have to say that all, all the agencies are asking for is, you know, a billion dollars a year. You know, we can give away zillions here and zillions there, but we, we can't find a billion dollars a year for, for wildlife conservation. And, and the incredible efficiency and effectiveness that the states have Again, going back to hunters, you know, look what we did for turkey. Look what we did for elk. Look what we did for white-tailed deer. I mean, all those all those animals that we take for granted now that are reasonably abundant were at the brink of extinction in the early 1900s, late 1860s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, that that Rawa Recovering America's Wildlife Act has been what almost three decades. Early 90s, I think, is when that first kind of came about, and it has gotten so close so many times and it has fallen victim to the politics over in DC. And I think it might be interesting to do just a podcast on, on what Rawa is sometime and, and then just how close we have gotten. And then, okay, it didn't happen. Uh, I mean, yeah, we've had some great conservation victories here in the past handful of years, but I, I mean, Rawa would just be such a boon to everything else that we really need to, to continue to, to shepherd these wildlife resources. Yep. So where should we go from here? Should we, should we dive right into the book or do you want to talk about the report that just came out a couple of weeks ago? Oh, we could talk about the book. I think there's okay. some, some really good things in there. I think that the whole idea of, of words matter is, is incredibly important. And I hope listeners take that away and, and understand what comes out of their mouth is what people hear. There's something that says, you know, it's, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. And so there's incredible importance of just being cognizant of words and phrases that, that we use. Because remember, it's not like a football game where people watch a football game and they can judge the quarterback or the running back or the safety or anything like that. Hunting is done well outside an audience. And so what do we have then? We have words, we have images, we have things that we post. And if we don't show hunting as a, as a respecting an animal and life that you take is anything more than we don't 
show the importance of how much we respect wildlife and conservation, then people aren't going to know. They can't judge for themselves. Or, you know, worse, they let anti-hunters sort of take the reins and put a public image in people's minds. So the big point is that we need to be cognizant of what we say and how we say it. And one of the things that you you did say in, in your presentation long ago was the the truth does not speak for itself, but that you need a good argument, right? Yep. And I think that's important too, because we do have so many pictures out there for, for social media or print magazine, whatever. And we're putting a lot of things in the old adage that a picture is worth a thousand words might be true, but those words still need to be spoken in some way that is articulate and meaningful and has impact on the audience. And more than that, the desired impact that you want to have on that, that audience. And so I don't really want to dive down the road too much about what picture should we be putting out there. Uh, I'm curious though, are you, uh, how do you feel about hero shots out there? Did you putting out with your turkeys on your grand slam? It depends on what that is. There's an easy answer to that. And I would say that if a photo shows respect for the animal, then it's good. If it does not show respect for the animal, it's bad. So blood's okay, death's okay, weapons are okay, but there's a respect element that really has to be the priority there. Well, I mean, even blood, I recommend cleaning things up. People don't want to look at bloody animals and stuff. And again, does that really show respect? I think you know it when you see it, as a famous (laughs) Supreme Court justice said. You you know what a photo looks like when it shows respect for the animal, and you know what it does, and at least the average person. If you're jumping on top of it, if you show what I would call a dominionistic pose, that's going to be rejected. And we can talk about the whole difference between animal rights, animal welfare, and what I call dominionism. You know it. You know, if you're jumping up and down and high-fiving and and the animal is there all scrunched up, what kind of message does that send? Mm, True. You you can send that. So I think that's really important. It doesn't matter what I say. I'm just a messenger here. I'm just a messenger to fellow hunters that what you post does matter. And because other non-hunters are going to see that and you want to see things from their perspective, because that's the judgment that they're going to put on you. Well, we've talked about it a couple of times, the difference between animal welfare and animal rights. What's the, the nuance there? Yeah, great question. And I would love to talk about that. Over the years, we've, we've been studying animal rights and animal welfare literally since the 1990s. The Hunters Leadership Forum and Peter Churchborn that I was talking about helped fund a, a major study, you know, one of the largest of its kind ever a few years ago. And we learned a lot. But one of the things that we know is that people's attitudes toward animals in a very simplistic way runs from what I would call animal rights. And that is, is that animals have rights like humans. In the middle, you have what we call animal welfare. And that is, is that animals can be used um, as long as they don't experience undue pain and suffering. And that's animal welfare. But there's another category there going even further, which is what I would call dominionism. And that is, is that animals can be used regardless. Who cares? Whack them and stack them, kill them and grill them, you know? So yeah, that's an attitude that some people have. But when you look at the numbers, only about 14% of Americans hold an animal rights attitude, only 14%. Now, when you take that further and you say, well, who lives by this? Only about three to 4% of Americans actually live by an animal rights attitude because you can't, you can't, you can't say you're for animal rights and eat a hamburger. You can't say you're for animal rights and 
wear a belt. I mean, that's that if animals have rights like humans, they have rights like humans, but only, you know, a few percent, single digits actually live by that. Something like 95% of Americans eat meat. So very small number of, of people really have animal rights. You could say it, but you don't want to say it over a hamburger because you look pretty hypocritical. <laughs> In the big middle is that group, the animal welfare group, which is about eight, over 80%. It's like 82% of Americans say, yes, you can use animals, but they can't experience undue pain and suffering. And then on the dominionism side, hey, we can use them. Who cares? They don't. We don't care about animals and their welfare or anything else. That's only 4%. So again, show a picture of a bloody animal with your head, with your foot on its head, and you're showing you're the dominant one. Well, you're going to appeal to 4% of the public, and you're going to not appeal to 96%. So there's that continuum there. And therefore, the whole support for hunting lies in the middle. And that is, is you can utilize animals, we can hunt. I mean, upwards of 80% of Americans support hunting in general, when we call it what it is, which is legal regulated hunting. And most people are going to reject the whole animals have rights like humans and not eat meat because everybody does. Everybody uses animals. So the war is one in the middle, and that is is showing respect for that animal. People already support hunting. The American public generally supports what we want to continually call legal regulated hunting, because that's what we're talking about. The American public will support that. There's, there's variations that we can talk about if we have time. People support hunting in general. Again, there's some things that they don't. But if we show respect for the animal, then we have the support of most Americans. What are those little differences that you were just referencing? When we started to study really in earnest attitudes toward hunting, and we would do surveys or focus groups, and the question would be, do you support or oppose hunting? And people would say, well, you know, no, I don't support hunting. And so you'd probe in more of a qualitative sense on why. And somebody might say, well, I don't support hunting because I think the poaching of rhinos in Africa is terrible. And I would think, wow, you know, so do I. <laughs> but that's not hunting. That's not what we're talking about. Over the years, we have really recommended and stressed that people talk about legal regulated hunting because that's what we're talking about, that it's sanctioned by the state, that a lot of people just don't even know that. A lot of people don't know that there's seasons and that there's quotas on how many animals you can take. Some people who are against hunting falsely are against hunting because they think hunting makes the, the populations of animals decline. And we know that's not true. The state Fish and Wildlife Agency and the commission deem that, that there can be a hunting season, which is actually ingrained in law, that, that that's what their job is, which is ironic if you think about it for a commissioner to be an anti-hunter because basically they're going against the spirit of what the agency was set up for. But anyways, when people would say that, it's like, well, we should not say that. We should say legal regulated hunting because that's what it is. But in that case, hunting attitudes will vary by species. Upwards of 80% of Americans support deer hunting, but that might go to a low of 35, 38% on hunting for a mountain lion. By method, you know, that hunting with a bow and arrow, hunting for a right with a rifle is supported by a majority of Americans, 75, 80%. But when you get something like high fenced hunting, that support will decline to 20%. So you've got these huge variations. Hunting for the meat by motivation, 80% plus of Americans support hunting for the meat. Hunting for a 
trophy, and we can talk about this because there's talk about some loaded language there, but just the average American, only about 30% of Americans support hunting for a trophy. And again, I, that, I have a whole section in that book on trophy hunting because it's certainly the most misunderstood word and it's used as a weapon by anti-hunters against hunters that can be effective from their side of things because most Americans think of trophy hunting as going out there. And this, we know this isn't true. So when, you, when I say this, don't cringe, but, but many Americans will say, oh, trophy hunting, I'm not against you know, the big rich hunter flying halfway across the world to kill an animal only to take its head and leave the rest there and come back home and put it on his, his wall and act like he's some big hotshot. Well, that's what they define as trophy hunting, but that, of course, isn't what trophy hunting is. But they want to use that image to chip into American support for hunting. And it can be effective. And that's why we need to know about that. And we need to know what the image is in their head about trophy hunting in order to combat it. And if you think about it, think think about all the things you've ever heard from anti-hunters when they're trying to go against something, you know, they're against this or against that. It's not they're against bear hunting, they're against trophy bear hunting and so on and so on. So they use that word quite effectively. So I think it's really important for hunters and conservationists to know how that term has been weaponized. That is not what trophy hunting is. And there's a whole history behind how that term got to be where it is today. But again, it's just, it's important to know these things. Well, so I want to ask about trophy hunting because it's something I've asked other guests. The weaponization of of the word against us, do you feel like that word is redeemable in any way, trophy hunting? (laughs) I don't know. You can either change your language or you can help redefine what that means. The anti-hunters have used that fairly effectively. And we can go two ways. We can either go well, we're going to call it conservation hunting or whatever, or we can educate people on what trophy hunting really is. I'm not sure I have an answer to that. I just think it's important that if you're in a debate or a conversation with somebody that talks about trophy hunting, that you definitely need to address what it is and what it is not. I mean, most hunters, something like 95, 96% of hunters, and these are, these are my numbers, I'm just making these up, 95% of American hunters eat what they kill. There's very little waste when it comes to hunting. Hunters will donate excess meat to Hunters for the Hungry or other type programs. Americans support hunting for the meat. So I think you need to refocus what trophy hunting is. Trophy hunting, as you know, takes the older animals that might not be reproducing anymore or even a hindrance to population reproduction. And there's all sorts of things. The key is to understand and know what you're talking about and talk about these things as opposed to raising your voice or calling the other person stupid. Well, before we get into crafting the argument, which I think most people really want to know, just how do we figure this out and how do we talk to people who are either in the middle of the road or or they're on the other side of the the spectrum from us when it comes to hunting. But before we do, a, a question popped in my mind. Has PETA or the Humane Society commissioned research similar to yours and come up with different results that you know about? <laughs> First off, I can say I don't know if they have, and you know, certainly not for me, but I can tell you that in studying their messages, they're pretty good at their messages, so they probably have. And I would imagine that, no, it's, that, I mean, we've done so much of this work. There's, there's some fundamentals that don't change or anything like that. The question, though, is you can do research and I can educate people on what to say 
but how good are we at actually getting the word out in terms of that? And there's been talk, certainly, of course, of developing national campaigns on getting that word out. We do it with fishing. We have the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation that gets millions of dollars a year to get the good word out about fishing. Why can't we have some similar dollars put into increasing cultural support for hunting? So um, there's research and there you can do things. I can tell you all day the way to get healthy is, you know, eat right, exercise and get enough sleep. But if you don't do it, it doesn't matter. Oh, very true. Very true. I don't know how we increase that funding, but certainly, you know, every, I think every sportsman has in some way their own platform or their own influence circle, and they're able to, to take what we're talking about today. And, and, you know, at least from a grassroots perspective, be able to have efficacy on informing people or educating people on what trophy hunting is or the motivations behind it, or even just some of the fallacies that people might believe, which might be another time for us to get into some of the myths or, or things that people think about hunting that just aren't happening behind the curtain that they don't know about. But let me interject that some states are doing some good things. Think about the Michigan Wildlife Council. When you buy a license, a hunting license in Michigan, there's a small surcharge on that. That goes to a group called the Michigan Wildlife Council. That sole mission is to increase support for hunting, well, in other things too, trapping and fishing. Colorado, same thing. So think if all the states had those, or think if there were some really good national campaigns that were well-funded and utilized this research to get the word out. Well, certainly agree with you that the need is really there and trying to find that funding again, like going back to Rawa and, and you know, just trying to find the dollars for things that really matter and really need sometimes can be can be difficult for sure. Well, as I as I tell my employees, talking is easy and doing is hard. That's true. That's true. Well, it's easy for us to just be on a podcast talk about these things, right? <laughs> yeah, but I know I know what you do, and you you work toward that, and we do it too. And 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 again, our state fish and wildlife agencies, the group that's called the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, Wildlife Management Institute, Boone and Crockett. I mean, those are just such good or Ducks Unlimited, National Rifle Association, um, Hunters Leadership Forum. I mean, everybody is really concerned about all of these issues. And now it's a matter of just trying to figure out how to how to make it happen. But it's not for lack of trying. Yeah, agreed. You know, you mentioned like Boone and Crockett and, and, and I'm a, an associate member there and, and the work that they do and a lot of what Boone and Crockett does is behind the scenes, right? They're not on the front page of a newspaper crowing about whatever they've done, but the work that they're doing is such, I mean, it's monumental. It's huge. And they're a huge force behind the scenes. And, and so being members of an organization like that and being able to support, I think, I think that's really important. And when I, I've written articles about adult onset hunters or new hunters, or when I talk to hunter ed classes, I tell them, join groups like this, these conservation groups, uh, use your voice to enlarge the greater voice for conservation and I think it's an it's an easy way, but man, such a vital way too. Agree, agree. Infrastructure that America has in place for wildlife conservation, in my opinion, is stunning. We are a world leader. The countries that want to emulate the U.S. do it for a reason because we're successful. And what amazes me in working with state fish and wildlife agencies and, and all these conservation groups over literally over 40, 45 years is that they do so much with so little. I mean, it is absolutely, I mean, I know the budgets of these agencies because I, I work with all 50. I've, over, over my career, I think I've probably, maybe there's one or two, but I've probably addressed every single commission 
you know, on numerous occasions over the years. And what they do is so impressive with, with, with literally no money. I mean, I think any corporation would look at an agency and go, how did you do all of that with this little money? I mean, it's just, it's, it's just stunning, the infrastructure that we have in place. But I, again, I think we can do more with more money. And that's why things like RAW or all of these things are so incredibly important. We have to keep trying and, and we're getting there. Slowly but surely, we get there. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you remember the last time you were over here in Montana at our commission? It's been a while. And the reason you can put me on the spot, that's fine. But when this is how long it's been is when Pat Graham and Kay Cool were directors there. Wow. <laughs> but, but here's a cool thing is that, that Pat Graham, of when he was the director, who's a, just a, a really great guy. I haven't seen him for a while, but just such a great person. He was actually an original board of directors member of Responsive Management. So Montana has, has played a key role in, in the growth of Responsive Management. Well, I'm glad that we're effective in doing some stuff. I work a lot with RFWP here and uh, there's, there's always a need and they are, they're really good at being creative with piecing together certain things because there's so many limitations placed on them. But the things that they do, they do get done are, are really fantastic. And, and I tell people, well, think if we just, if we gave 10 bucks more for a license, what more could they do with that? You know, most times when I talk to them uh, and I ask them, Hey, how come we're not doing this? It really just, uh, it comes down to budget. It's not because there's an agenda or lack of desire or biologists who can't do it. It's they just, the funding's not there. And that's my plea to donate a buck or two to your local state wildlife agency for sure. But we have fun here at responsive management on that. We do a lot of economic studies in terms of we're doing two right now. We did one, a big one for Ohio and then another one for Florida uh, we work with a group called Southwick Associates that does a lot of economic work, and it was we were working on this on one of the, one of the ones this morning. But it's pretty interesting because you ask hunters, you know, how much did you spend on this, and uh, how much did you spend on that, and you know, we're buying, you know, thousands of dollars worth of firearms and hundreds of dollars of ammo and um, coolers that are four hundred dollars and stuff. And it's like you do other studies for agencies on increasing licenses. Would you support or oppose increasing a license by $5? No, no way. I can't do that. Oh my gosh. No, I'm not going hunting anymore. <laughs> it's like, well, you just spent $4,000 on this one hunt and you, you you reject a $4 increase on your license. Oh, when I first got into working with our state commission and I was a little bit naive, but I was also, you know, passionate, right? I said, well, why don't we just raise a dollar or two on a, on a, on a license sale? And man, everybody looked at me and I, it was like, I stepped in the biggest pile of, you know what, and had not wiped my feet because I don't get why it is so hard to do that. But I also think about every year, all the states that I apply to and they require me to buy a hunting license. And even if I don't draw in that state, I don't get that money back for the most part. And a lot of people, you know, they're, they're getting upset about a hundred bucks here and there, but you know, that hundred bucks gets tripled and now becomes more for that state to do something in, with wildlife management, right? Because of PR or DJ, whatever is going on at the time. And, and, and so it's not wasted money, right? It's not even, it's not even a donation to a charity. It's, it's an investment in future opportunity, future habitat, and, and it's, Frankly, it's the least that we can be doing as sportsmen, hunters, conservationists for the cause, right? Just putting some money in a piggy bank. It doesn't require you to sweat and remove fence on a mountainside for eight hours on a Saturday. It's 
it's not even close to that. And so I, it's, yep. there's, I think there's more that we could be doing and, but we're, we're, we tend to be tight fisted sometimes. The argument that I love to use is, is what percent of everything that you've spent on a hunting trip goes to a license and it's, it's minimal. Yeah. I mean, obviously, unless you're a non-resident doing something that's you know extremely expensive, but in general, an in-state resident hunting license is certainly one of the best bargains out there in this day and age. I absolutely agree. And I'll buy one every day. Let's talk a little bit about, about our arguments, crafting the wordsmithing, all of that, because I think it's important that people buy your book. Well, it's free, right? It's free. And we can talk about that later on in terms of how you get that through the NRA's Hunter's Leadership Forum. I definitely want to do that. I want to make sure, and we'll put links here too, for people to to get a copy. I think it's a really important resource that should be on your shelf, but you're going to have to, you're going to need to spend some time with it and dive into it, but it's not that it's so difficult to understand. I think it's that there's just so much there and maybe this is the wrong place to start. But for me, when I was reading through the establishing your credibility with ethos and pathos and, and logos, um, those to me are kind of fundamental for, for crafting an argument. They are. And it's thousands of years old that really smart people have said that if you want to win an argument, you need to have all three of those. You need to have ethos, which is your credibility. Who are you? What's your training? Um, what's your background? What's your experience? What What have you said and done before? I mean, the second that's, that somebody doesn't have credibility, it doesn't matter what they say. And it can be it can be credibility in terms of of a lot of things in terms of who we are. Some of our best spokespersons are from state fish and wildlife agencies, either a biologist or a law enforcement officer. Some of the most respected people out there are are game wardens or law enforcement officers or whatever they're called in your state. Different different states call them different things. But you want to have credibility, and hunters can have that credibility as well. If you've if you've been around the world hunting, or if you talk about the North American model of wildlife conservation, or if you talk about Theodore Roosevelt and all of his contributions to wildlife conservation, or if you know that there's six or seven million turkeys out there, you can establish credibility with the listener. But along with that credibility, you have to have pathos or emotion. You need to care about what it is you're doing. If you don't care, people don't care. You Sometimes people say, well, don't show me how much you know. Show me how much you care. I've been doing work for, again, for 33 years. We've been studying how the American public relates to the outdoors. And very, very rarely do I hear in anything that people don't like wildlife or they don't like conservation. They may have issues and they may worry about disease, tick-borne diseases or whatever it may be. But even so, people will overlook that because people care about conservation. They care about wildlife. We sometimes use it in a cliche way, like you might hear a football coach say, it's in our DNA. Well, you know, wildlife is in our DNA. Think about our earliest interactions with the world. It has always been with wildlife and with animals. What is the the thing that we've done most as a hunter-gatherer society? We've been hunting for over a million years. It is ingrained in what it is that we do. What is the earliest art forms that we have? Well, we have them upwards of 35,000 years ago, most of them fifteen to 17,000 years ago, in the form of cave art. At one point in time in northern Spain and southern France, 
our ancestors, Cro-Magnons, went into caves upwards of a quarter to a half a mile in pitch black and painted pictures, very anatomically correct pictures of woolly mammoth, woolly rhinoceros, of, of oryx and early horses and, and other species that they looked at. Hunting is ingrained and, and animals are ingrained in our life. And we, and we as hunters, we as conservationists care about conservation. And we need to show that when we, when we talk about hunting, when we debate hunting, we need to let people know that we care. Um, I don't care if you don't know a whole lot. I want, I want you, if you don't know a lot, I want you to care about conservation, the history of, of wildlife. And then finally, you need to have logic or logos. You need to make an argument that is fundamentally logical. And so you need to have all three of those. And, and when you talk and you think about things, if you're talking to your brother-in-law at a Thanksgiving dinner that you only see once a year and you just got your deer, he's like, why the, why the heck did you do that? And you need to talk about why you did that and have your arguments be based on credibility, ethos, emotion, pathos, and logic and a logical argument, logos. Is this something that you can come up with beforehand or is it something more you just kind of need to know some steps before you get into a discussion with someone? I think I think both. I think you need to know the facts. I think knowing the facts about where hunting came from and where hunting is. I think the history of wildlife conservation in the U.S. is, is absolutely an incredible story in the success that we had. Again, in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, most people thought that our beloved wildlife species were on their way out, that they just, they wouldn't be around anymore. And it was because of dedicated hunters, the Boone and Crockett Club, Theodore Roosevelt, due to everyday hunters who started to purchase license, started to obey the rules, that we came from where we were to where we are today. So I think understanding that history is incredibly important. I mean, again, even just last week when I was in front of you know a lot of Boy Scouts, they get 14,000 kids at this Boy Scout Jamboree every four years in talking to not all 14,000, but a heck of a lot of them. I mean, the kids just didn't know that. Even the, the kids who hunted, they were like, really? Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Theodore Roosevelt, Aldo Leopold, George Bird Grinnell. Wow, I'd like to know more about these people. So, so you want to know your basic history on conservation. And I think you also have to be prepared, not... Be prepared like you're going into a boxing match because people people don't want to be called stupid. They don't want to be called wrong. I think they do want to learn and they do want to educate and be educated about, about that rich history that we have. So I think you, you need to learn about what works and what doesn't. You had talked that you want to talk about what the best arguments were. And so you need to know that, that hunting is a food source. Hunting is a wildlife management tool. Hunting is conservation are really powerful arguments. You need to be ready for when people say trophy hunting, you're just, you're there for trophy hunting. Well, no, actually trophy hunting is this and this and this, and it's not that and that and that. So you, you need to be relatively educated. Again, not just in terms of facts, but also demeanor. Demeanor is everything. People Again, people don't want to be called stupid. They might not know, but it doesn't make them stupid. There's a lot of things that I don't know about, but but I don't feel stupid. I'm just uninformed. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the whole point of why, why we're getting here today is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so sometimes it's it's helpful to just expose people to new ideas. And I think that's a lot of what I come into contact with when I'm talking to the general public about hunting. There's there's a lot of perceptions that people get from 
you know, right or wrong, TV shows, whatever, and just a little bit of education goes such a long ways with them. And we're talking about the, what, 86% who are in the middle, right, who have not a negative or a positive view of hunting or not even an exposure to it, but just the general public. And, and they don't know what they don't know sometimes. And if they're if they're willing to listen, I think most of them will find that a lot of the arguments or the things that we're talking about today these are things that they're okay with and that how we're doing it and how we're communicating hunting or doing hunting ourselves is, is really just, it's okay. Well, exactly. And, and we have a point in the book on that is that it's, it's a matter of reaffirming that hunting is okay. And here's why it's okay. You know, we can't make everybody a hunter, but you can increase that cultural support for hunting that is necessary for hunting and uh, the hunting community to thrive in. And quite frankly, you know, to be looked up to and not scoffed at. You also talk about in your presentation, the the dirty dozen, the threats to hunting. Have those changed in the, the past couple of years? Do you find that they're really kind of staying constant? They're pretty constant. And they're, they're constant because many of the real threats to hunting, at least the number of hunters, are relatively stable. Um, in terms of, of what they are, because they're, they're demographic. They're these broad demographic changes that are taking place across America, from urbanization to baby boomers getting older. All of these things are working against hunting. I mean, think about some of the most basic ones, you know, ruralization. I mean, we, we used to be a rural society. Now there's upwards of 80, 85% of Americans living in urban areas. You don't have that close contact with the hunting culture. Um, a long time ago, I, I wrote in a magazine or something. I don't remember where it was, but I, I wrote something like, it takes a hunter to make a hunter. And people sort of, you know, actually some agencies sort of took that and, and used that as a little bumper sticker or something. But it's true. You really need to make a lifelong hunter. You've got to be exposed to a hunting culture generally at a younger age. Um, yes, there are adult onset hunters. I'm an adult onset hunter, and that's becoming more common, but it's not the large macro scale that produces a lot of hunters. Things like urbanization take away from, from hunting areas. I've heard when we talk about hunting in R3, recruitment, retention, and reactivation of hunters, I've t- some everyday hunters go, I don't want more hunters. You know, there's, there's not enough places to go now. Now, certainly the community, the professional community and conservation community as a whole doesn't agree with that, but you know, their argument is that, well, there's too many of them now. So that, that whole idea of urban-rural is important. Demographics are incredibly important. We're getting older. We're getting more non-white. Non-white individuals are less likely to hunt. Older people are more likely to drop out. We always think, oh, when I retire, I'm just going to hunt for the rest of my life. And, and that's a good thing, but, but from a statistical standpoint, that really doesn't happen. These trends are, are working against us. We just did a really cool study for the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance on hunting avidity. And we did, we did two things. If you're interested, I can t- say these real quick. Oh, yeah. Keep going. We did a major survey of U.S. hunters. I mean, huge survey of hunters on what, how people got started, what they hunt for, this and that. But at the same time, we looked at the licensed databases of state fish and wildlife agencies. 
And we ran all sorts of statistical analyses. I've, I've got some really amazing people who do, who do my statistics for me. And when we put together the findings from looking at the demographics of who these people were in the licensed databases, and we looked at several years worth of, of license purchasing, and then we looked at all of the things like, how did you get started? What do you like to do about hunting? What this, what that? I mean, literally only a couple, well, really only one variable trumped everything else. And that was essentially being a baby boomer. It was like the, the demographics trumped everything else over all sorts of variables that we looked at, 150 variables. So the, 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 what's happening within the hunting population is that they're getting older and they're getting older and they're getting older as a generation. And at some point, they're just not being replaced. And so I do fear in 20 years from now, maybe sooner, that we're going to have some, some higher levels of desertion, not because people don't like hunting. It's because that generation is what's been the foundation of hunting in the United States. Do you feel like we're already starting to see some of those effects with with these commissions and the, and the makeup and how they're changing a little bit already? And so you're starting to see what 20 years ago we would never think they would just get rid of a season for no reason. Well, I don't want to say no reason for. Well, I, I think it's, well, there are two different things. I think there's, there's hunting participation, which has its own, own set of variables affecting it. And then there's the variables affecting attitudes toward hunting. We were a co-investigator, just a co-investigator. The study that was done, it was led by Colorado State University called America's Wildlife Values a few years ago. Again, that was, you know, they were the lead on that, but we we did uh, we're allowed to be co-investigators. We did the the data collection and we're involved with that as a as a co-investigator. And it was really interesting because when they after they ran that data, you know, just it was again, it's a huge study, it's a multi-million dollar study. One of their conclusions is that that America's wildlife values are changing from um, less utilitarian the use of wildlife and more so on a mutualistic level. That is, is that animals are sort of our brothers and sisters and, and that type of stuff, and that that was increasing. The conclusion that they came to after looking at all of the data is that this was due to what they called modernization. And it was basically living in urban areas, uh, higher um, levels of income, and increasing levels of, educa- of formal education. And so as America urbanizes, becomes wealthier, apparently these attitudes are sort of following along, if you will. And, it, and in some ways, it makes sense. If you, live in an, if you live in an urban area and wildlife is something that's put on your wall in a pretty oil on canvas painting or an acrylic or, you know, it's on TV and they're cute. And people are, are much more removed from the everyday reality of what wildlife is. And everybody cares about wildlife. Everybody wants to see it perpetuate in the future. But how they go about doing that is very different based on their on their real world experiences. If you've never if you never come face to face with a grizzly bear, and you've only seen it in a Robert Bateman painting, that's a that's a different creature. People have different experiences with wildlife, and that's reflected based on their attitudes and in their and where they live and, and how they live. Do you think we're headed on a, a crash course or a negative trajectory with our funding sources for hunting then with PR and DJ dollars? That's a completely different issue. I actually wrote a paper 
published a peer-reviewed paper last year or the year before called The Precarious Position of Wildlife Conservation Funding. And the real issue there is that with more and more firearm sales and more and more ammunition being used for sport shooting, that actually hunters are contributing less than shooters are, many of those shooters being non-hunting shooters. And so now we have this very weird situation that more non-hunting gun owners are funding wildlife conservation. It's sort of a it's sort of something that I don't think anybody wants to hear, but but it's what's happening. It's what the numbers are showing. And it and it may be as much as 75% of sport shooters of non-hunting sport shooters funding Pittman Robertson what we call federal aid and wildlife restoration. So so yeah, I think I think we're very concerned about that. But I think there's things that they we can do and and again we're working with a lot of the state agencies to do that, setting up more shooting ranges in bringing these people into the fold. How do we bring in non-hunting gun owners to to go hunting? And we've got some pretty cool projects that we're doing right now as we speak to try to figure out how to do that. So so yeah, we're I'm concerned about that um all the way around. Yeah. Do you think the answer is to to increase hunters with R3 or is it to find more funding sources with something like a backpack tax or is it both? I think it's all of the above. It's everything. I mean, as long ago, what now, 90 years ago, Aldo Leopold wrote in, in all of his writings, he's considered the father of wildlife management, wrote that programs focused only on game species are destined to fail. So yeah, so the time has come for us to to be much more comprehensive in what we do. Again, I, I do think the key is focus on the bigger picture of conservation and wildlife as a whole, with hunting being an incredibly important part of that. You know, nobody wants to be left out of a club. You know, oh, you can't get into this school or this club. Oh, they're all stupid there. We hate them. Well, why why wouldn't we want to open our arms to everybody? I mean, I mean, wildlife conservation, if generally most people care about wildlife, maybe in different ways, but if they care about wildlife, let's get them to pony up and fund it. I actually did a, a presentation. I was the keynote speaker for the Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies conference a few years ago. And when I started to think about what I was going to talk about, I actually talked about um, the whole point that, you know, most Americans care about wildlife, but they're not they're not paying anything. I, when I started to look at the numbers, I mean, it was pretty incredible. When Why do you go camping? Why do you go hiking? Why do you do these things? It's just, you know, wildlife is at the top of the list. I talked about that and 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 talked about sort of these people who were conservationists at heart but weren't paying for it and, and maybe becoming freeloaders. And so I sort of talked about conservation freeloaders and some people picked up on that and they thought it was funny, but it wasn't meant to be funny. It was meant to be that if you care about wildlife, you, you better help pay for this. You better understand why hunters have been the heroes of conservation and you need to figure out how we can get Restoring America's Wildlife Act passed and, and all of that. So um, I think I think it's strength in numbers. Do you feel like we're on a negative trajectory right now where the, the funding source is just not going to be adequate in the, the near future? I'm an optimist. I'm getting old now. <laughs> so when you look when you look back at your life and all of the things that you worried about never happened, um, I think we should be concerned. I mean, that's that I 
titled the paper called The Precarious Position of Wildlife Conservation for a Reason. I think things tend to work themselves out. There are papers that were published in the 1970s on on attitudes toward hunting, and people would write, well, you know, the younger, they would survey kids and they'd say, the younger generation doesn't support hunting. And so by 1990, nobody's going to support hunting. Well, you know, it didn't, it wasn't true. There's a a, a cliche called trend is not destiny. Trend is not destiny. So while I'm concerned, um, if you're if you, if we were a business as conservationists as hunters, what is our product? Wildlife, man, we got it. We got a hell of a good product, and people care about deer. Now, everybody might want to shoot a deer, but people care about deer habitat and deer management, and even sometimes the control of deer in terms of damage and whatnot. But we all care. And so I'm pretty positive because I've been around long enough and I know the people involved with this just aren't going to quit. Again, I, you, you can hear one of the tones in my voice of, of how much I respect the heck out of the conservation organizations from the agencies to the folks who published or you know helped do the book on, on how to talk about hunting, the NRA's Hunters Leadership Forum to all of the no- nonprofits out there. I mean, we've, we've got... We've got really good employees and we've got a really good product. Now we just need to be better communicators. And that's what that book is all about. There has been a little bit of a chicken little sky is falling mentality within the hunting community. The concern about declining numbers in hunters and how their license sales would have a direct reflection on the, the PR and DAJ dollars for wildlife management. And so there has to be an inclusion of other people who are not hunters themselves or even sportsmen, but they like wildlife, as you just said. So is the table big enough for everybody to sit at the table and, and hunters to be able to hunt and wildlife lovers to just be able to, to watch and everybody to pull the money together for the benefit of the habitat and the wildlife? I mean, I think absolutely yes. In fact, a lot of what the agencies are dealing with now, when you go to conferences and stuff like that, over the past five to seven years, there's there are two main driving topics have been R3 and agency relevancy. Those are two sides of the same coin. They're being done by sort of different people with different values within the agency or in general, but they're two sides of the same coin. They're they're trying to get more Americans interested in wildlife, whether it's in bird watching or in hunting. And they're doing it and it's happening now because of those major demographic changes that are happening across America. We're getting older. There's more of us. We're more urbanized. There's more immigrants. And so there's, there's the, America's changing the conservation community, whether it's the relevancy non-game folks or the hunting R3 folks, are addressing that for the exact same reasons, which are those demographic changes that are taking place. Well, just to kind of put a bow on how to talk about hunting, I, I mean, again, there's so much that we could unpack from that. And you took days to, to explain it to us when you gave the conference a few years ago. And <laughs> days and <laughs> days. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was great. I mean, I'm just, I took probably 10 or 15 pages of notes while I was listening to you. And, and there's, there's probably, I don't know, 20 slides or something. There's so much to unpack there. And if, if you're a communicator, if you're a writer, if you're somebody who's just passionate about being able to speak with a little bit more clarity on on hunting and its effects and why there's a, there's a lot of validity to it. It's not like we just want to go out there and as the anti-hunters call us Elmer Fudd, right? That's that's not who we are. 
But how do you say that to somebody in a way that has a meaningful impact and influences their thoughts and how they perceive hunting? That's why you've got what you wrote. And so it's it's a it's a really incredible work. And we, like you said, we've, we've been trying for six, seven months to get together and, and get this one recorded. But I think it's so vital to the future of hunting that you don't have to be, you don't have to have a doctor. You don't have to have a, to be a biologist to be able to speak with some clarity and some, some arguments that are persuasive to people who are on the fence or part of that 85% or so in the middle. Right. I'm not worried about the 5% vocal PETA humane society, you know, those cheerleaders, they can, they're, they're going to be there. And I'm not really sure sort of some kind of cataclysmic event in their life that there's going to be a change in their thinking, but that 85%, they really want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you don't have the ability to craft that argument, then I think that there's, there's a detriment there that you're doing the hunting. And so I I think that's why this is such a valuable resource and, and why I wanted to get you on to talk about it. So is there a big idea there that we might've missed that you want to cover? Well, you've done a great job asking a lot of questions. I mean, I, I love the comment um, that we have in the books that says, don't raise your voice, improve your argument. I think that focusing on the incredible history, on how the wildlife that we enjoy now has come to be, talking about the importance of hunting in a culture um, like America and what they've contributed and what they currently contribute, I think using the right words focusing in on on the story, if you will, and what hunters continue to do for wildlife, that we're in good shape. Again, are, should people be concerned about the future of conservation, about the future of hunting in general and attitudes toward hunting? Heck yeah. You know, except for this past year, hunting and attitudes and support for hunting have been relatively stable for for a while. So I think, again, we, we, we did see a decline this past couple of years, and we're going to try to figure out why that's happening. But in general, I think if hunters continue to, to understand to be respectful of animals, and you can't say it this way, but it, it's really hard to be against hunting if you eat meat. It's just, it's really, really hard. And so when we talk about hunting, we want to talk about the table value of that. You want to share that meat with friends and family or donate it to people who aren't as fortunate to be able to get meat. So there's there's a lot of things that we can do. And I think it's, um, I don't think it's any different. Maybe we can end here, is that for a successful hunt, you need to practice, you need to have the right gear, you, you need to do the right things. A successful hunt doesn't happen the instant that you pull the trigger. It's everything that happens before you pull that trigger. And so the same is true in terms of communicating about the importance of hunting in American culture. You need to to do your own homework about studying the arguments that work and the arguments that don't, the demeanor that you need to use. You need to be ready for some of the things that people are going to say and throw up trophy hunting in your face with the misinformation about what trophy hunting is. So I say, just like you're not going to be successful out if you don't prepare, if you don't practice shooting, you're not going to be a successful communicator. And we aren't going to be a successful community of communicators. Now, there's a tongue twister. If we don't do the appropriate work up front before these conversations take place, before we present ourselves to the public in in, in all sorts of situations. 
Well said, Mark. I, I really appreciated having you on. I'm glad that we we stuck it out for the last handful of months and <laughs> look forward to to future work from you guys there and future conversations between you and I. So thanks for being on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, all my friends have gone away. They say I did the walking. What can I say? I did the walking. They used to walk beside me. They turned to something beside me. They turned away. But I keep walking on. They say I did the walking. And now they say I'm gone.